Does God do evil? Why doesn't God prevent it? If evil exists, does that preclude us from believing in a loving God? Historic ideas about God have created a philosophical challenge for millennia. If God is good and loving, all-powerful and all-knowing, then why do people suffer? Why does God allow great atrocities and small evils? This is Logosish. Today, Thomas J. Ord joins us to discuss his book, God Can't, and he explains his solution to the problem of evil. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John here. We have all of our hosts on today. We have Sarah, we have Garrett, we have Brian, we have me. And it is going to be a very, I think, exciting and fun episode. We're going to dig into some things. We're going to talk a little bit about God and what God can and can't do, among other things. How's everybody doing today? Uh, well, I can tell Garrett is very cold in Florida. <laughs> with this uh, blanket, and I I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah, it's uh, around 37 degrees, and uh, the walls are a little little thin. So, you know, uh, know, I figured I'd go comfortable today and stop the chattering of my teeth. So less for you to edit out, John. I just want to point out that it's colder in Florida than it is in Virginia, and that is like the best kind of irony in December ever. Irony or climate change? (laughs) Can't it be both? (laughs) There are a bunch of just frozen Floridians sprawled out on the sidewalks. They don't know. Uh, They have to wait until the sun comes back out so they can warm back up. Well, this is a dark beginning to a dystopian novel that I actually kind of want to read. So let's talk about this after the podcast. Okay. Uh, but we are very excited. We have Thomas J. Ord on with us today. Author, uh, smart guy, all around seems like cool dude. Uh, we're really excited to be talking to you, Tom. How are you doing today? Doing pretty well in ice cold Idaho. I've got your temperatures beat from all of you, I'm sure. Uh, pretty cold up here, but I'm really happy to be having a conversation with you guys today. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to have you. So usually we start out by just kind of talking a little bit about uh, who our guest is, where they came from, you know, formative life experiences, whatever you want to share. Great. I grew up in a little uh, rural community in Washington State. My father was a part-time farmer. My parents were educators. I accepted Jesus into my heart many times as a little boy going to our little evangelical church, uh, Church of the Nazarene, uh, a denomination in which I'm still a member, in fact, an ordained elder. I was one of those kids who took uh, church seriously, Bible school seriously. You know, I had my witnessing tracks. I was, uh, by the time I got in college, I was the kind of annoying person who would sit next to you on a plane and ask you if you accepted Jesus into your heart. I would walk up to someone at a bar and want to strike up a conversation about Jesus. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ and shared the four spiritual laws all over the place. And then my senior year of college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time in my life, I read really smart people who didn't believe in God. They either were agnostics, atheists, or they maybe they did believe in God, but they were a part of another religious tradition. And 
the reasons I had for believing that there was a God at all didn't seem very strong. And I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting into the car and me turning her to her and saying, I don't believe in God anymore. My turn to atheism was not like an act of rebellion, you know, like I wasn't rebelling against my parents or the culture. It wasn't, um, it wasn't my attempt to sort of throw all my morals out and live wild and free. It was an intellectual issue. I wanted to have real solid intellectual reasons to think that there was a God. I eventually came to the place that I thought it was more plausible than not that God exists. And that's where I am today. And initially, at least, it was two issues that were central to my return to belief in God. First, I couldn't see how there could be something like an ultimate meaning in life if there wasn't something like a ground for that ultimate meaning that a lot of people call God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a person who loves other people and that other people ought to love, and that in some deep sense, the Beatles are right, that love is the answer. And I couldn't make sense of that intuition if there wasn't a source or ground of love that, again, most people call God. I uh, left college with that kind of view of reality. I, I basically believed there was a loving God and thought Jesus is pretty cool, and that was about it. And, I lost a job. I applied to be a youth pastor, and the pastor asked me what I thought about Jesus, and I said, well, you know, pretty cool guy. <laughs> Don't know if he's God, but pretty cool. I lost that job. Uh, I eventually got a job as a youth pastor, then went on to seminary, got a PhD, and uh, now I direct doctoral students in open and relational theology. I direct at uh, Northwind Theological Seminary. I direct a center for open and relational theology. I write books, I speak, and I'm a photographer. So there's a little bit about my life. Wow, that's a great story. That's awesome. Yeah, we really love a, a good story like that. I think we've all had a variety of uh, different kind of sort of paths in our own personal sort of religious experiences and faith formation. And we are all actually Methodist pastors. I don't think we mentioned that off no. the... Uh, podcast a second ago before we started recording, but you know that's that's kind of uh, a fun little thing. You know, we heard you were Nazarene, and we were like, okay, we're all Wesleyan today. We can just <laughs> all assume that everybody is like kind of vaguely on the same page insofar as anybody who's Wesleyan. And that's the and that's the error we always make as pastors is that people are on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big tent, Brian. It's a big big tent full of lots of just like weird looking people yeah they let me in so <laughs> so uh tom i my first question is a pretty general question um what do you mean when you say relational theology yeah uh is it okay if i answer that by saying what i mean by relational and open theology since i'm the director of the center for open and relational a absolutely was that going to be your follow-up question <laughs> that was not I, that was okay. not <laughs> Um, the word relational in open and relational theology stands for the idea that God is actually affected by what we do, what the world does. 
it's a very common view in most churches I know, most Methodist Nazarene churches, the idea that God is happy when we do well, God is grieved or sad when we sin, that somehow our actions make a difference to God, that our prayers actually might influence what God does. It comes as a big surprise to a lot of people when they discover that the vast majority of major Christian theologians in history have not believed that God is affected by us. They've thought God is, what we say in the scholarly circles, impassable. God is unaffected. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't, nothing we do makes any ultimate difference to God. Relational theology disagrees and says that we engage with God and the world in a kind of giving and receiving relationship. The open in open relational theology will probably strike some of your listeners as strange idea and maybe not even that important, but we think it has some pretty important implications. The open stands for the idea that God experiences time moment by moment like we do, and the future is open. Instead of the future being predestined or even foreknown in its entirety by God, the future is a realm of possibilities. And while God may be able to make some pretty uncannily accurate guesses about what's going to happen in the near future, God can't know with absolute certainty what's going to happen in the future because the future has not yet occurred and so it's not yet knowable. That's the open part of open relational theology. And so in your book that we're talking about today, the book, by the way, is God Can't by Thomas J. Ord. That's you. The book, you're applying open and relational theology to the question of the problem of evil, right? Yeah, there's not a lot of openness stuff in this book. There is a lot of relational stuff. So, um, you know, if you don't buy into the open view that I just mentioned, you probably still will get a lot out of this book. But um, the idea that God really interacts with the world plays an important role in um, the, several of the ideas that are central to God can't. So how do you lay out the problem of evil and define evil more specifically? Yeah, um, I think an evil event, here's a kind of a technical phrase here, just let me throw it at you, all right? An evil event is any event that all things considered makes the world worse than it might have been. So that means that not all painful events are evil. Sometimes we choose to be, go through painful events because we think there's something better. You know, when my wife and I decided we wanted to have children, we knew that she was going to go through some pain in delivering those kids and they would probably bring us some pain at some time in our lives when, you know, they were two or 22, but we thought that having children would be overall a good thing. And so it wasn't evil, but an evil event makes all the world worse, all things considered. And it's easy, I think, for most of us to point to uh, particularly grievous uh, events as evil, like uh, rape, torturing children, genocide, murder, uh, slander, those kinds of things. But when I talk about evil, I'm not just talking about the big stuff like that. I also mean things like divorce or people who cheat on each other or 
miscarriage, that's pretty big, but maybe in some people's mind, it's not big. But in other words, it doesn't have to be these huge things in the minds of everyone. It can still be something that makes the world worse than it otherwise might have been. And so when we think about evil and what philosophers call the problem of evil, the big question is usually phrased like this. If God exists and God loves perfectly, everyone, all things, all the time, perfect love, and if God is super powerful, then why doesn't this powerful and loving God prevent the genuine evils of the world? And I use that word prevent because some people kind of get off the hook. They'll say, well, God doesn't cause murder. God doesn't cause rape. God doesn't cause, you know, genocide, miscarriages, but God allows them. And in my view, that's not a strong argument. If God has the kind of power to prevent a rape and yet allows it, I don't think that God is perfectly loving. Yeah, there's a, often the question is posed to me, you know, with all of the, like, why do all of these bad things happen to good people? And why does God allow it? And it sort of seems like some sort of, and one person described it as some sort of like divine abuse or gotcha moment. And that, that tends to be worse than um, living in that struggle that um, maybe God exists in the world in a different way than maybe we've sort of thought of in the past, right? Maybe God's power is different than what we think of when we think of something as all powerful. So yeah, that's obviously the direction I'm going in this book. When I say something like God can't Mm -hmm. now it's, it's much more common among theologians today and throughout history when this particular problem is posed, it's more common for them to start by saying things like, well, you know, we really can learn a lesson from the difficulties we go through. So maybe these things you think are evil are actually part of God's mysterious plan to make us good, to build our character or to teach us a lesson. And that kind of argument only goes a short way until you start thinking about the horrific things that happen that don't seem to make people better. (laughs) Or they'll say something like, uh, well, look, if God stepped in and intervened and stopped all evil, then where would that stop? And so therefore, God's going to have to have a hands-off policy. And then those people who say that will usually come back around and say, yeah, but he does do miracles every once in a while that involves God single-handedly fixing things. And so they, they don't have a very consistent theology. But the very best of the theologians, I disagree with this view, but I think that's the closest best thing to the one I want to propose today. The best will eventually kind of throw up their hand and say, you know, it's just a mystery. God's ways are not our ways. Who are we to know the mind of God? And that usually allows a lot of theologians to kind of slip away from this issue and, and construct their theology without really taking into account the possibility that I'm proposing that we should rethink God's power in such a way that God simply can't single-handedly stop the crap, the evil in the world that we uh, see in our own lives and, and in creation. I really liked in your book how you described God as uh, the universal spirit present in everything, but 
can only react in or can only react in creation in a certain certain way and uh, that definitely uplifted my mind out of that mire of bad things happen to good people um, or the fancy theology word of uh, theodicy that terrible mire that we're all kind of like trying to get our way out of as pastors and theologians so reading that part of your book was was definitely very helpful to me and put a lot of concepts for me at the forefront someone literally asked me the question today so uh, i mean it's, it's, it's a relevant <laughs> question like it, yes and uh and i just i kind of threw up the mystery answer because i'm like and i don't know y'all so Tom, can you kind of lay out the the four or five sort of major points that you move between in the chapters of God Can't? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let me lay out the five ideas, and then if you want to probe deeper on any one or all of them, we can do that. So the first chapter has the bold claim that God simply can't single-handedly prevent any event from occurring in the world. Can't single-handedly prevent evil. Uh, Notice I emphasize that word single-handedly. I'm not saying God is uninvolved. I think God is involved all the time at all levels of existence. But uh, what I'm rejecting is that God alone can bring about some outcome or consequence or result. So God can't single-handedly prevent evil. The second idea is that God suffers with us. God really feels the pain and endures those things with us. God's not, you know, somewhere off in Mars eating popcorn, watching us and saying, oh, sucks to be them. God is actually in the fray with us moment by moment, and God is affected. That's the relational part that I mentioned earlier. The third idea is that God actually wants to heal. Uh, many people, when they, they think about the problems of evil, they say, well, I'm not necessarily that interested in an answer to it. I mean, a lot of people are, but some people are like saying, what I really care about is getting over the suffering, getting past the trauma, being healed in some kind of way. And in this chapter, I argue that God really does act to heal, but can't heal single-handedly. That is, there has to be certain conditions in creation for the healing to happen, whether that involves cooperation at the cellular level or the environmental level or the psychological level, or in cases in which there's no cooperation, maybe the the inanimate conditions of creation are conducive for that healing. But I do believe God wants to heal, and all healing has its source in God, but God simply can't heal single-handedly. The fourth idea is that God works to squeeze good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. I grew up in a setting in which Sunday night, uh, we oftentimes had testimonies. And I can remember many times as a kid hearing testimonies that went something like this. You know, about a year ago, the company laid me off. And our family's been struggling this last year. We haven't had enough to eat. We haven't had new shoes. We need the car fixed. It's been really, really bad. But last month, I got a new job. And it's a better job with a better boss. Praise God. It was God's plan that I got laid off in the past so that I could have the good thing that I'm seeing right now. Well, as a kid in the pews, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this sucks. God is orchestrating evil. 
Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I can understand if you blamed it on the devil or, you know, a bad day at the office or something, but you're saying God wanted that. Uh, that makes no sense to me. But there is something true that we sometimes do learn from bad things. We sometimes do get a better job. Sometimes things are rosier at the end of a trial. And um, so I want to account for that without having to say God caused or even allowed the bad thing that happened in the first place. So God squeezes good out of the evil. And then finally, the final chapter talks about the kind of participation that God is calling upon us. And I make a claim that makes some people really nervous. I claim that God simply can't have the kind of final victory of love that God wants unless we cooperate. It's pretty popular today amongst a lot of professional theologians to say, you know, God is in inviting you to participate in what God's doing in the world. But most of those theologians in the back of their mind, they still have a God who can fix things single-handedly if God wants to. So it really doesn't matter if you cooperate because God's going to get the job done without any help. In the Wesleyan tradition, we have an idea that says that our, we work symbiotically with God and God will not save us without ourselves, to quote John Wesley. And I take that idea and I apply it to its logical conclusions, not only for salvation in this life, but also in the next. So... There you go. And at least your dog agrees with me. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's just saying amen. Um, Good. Preach it, sister. <laughs> uh, so I imagine that you've probably encountered some resistance to, to, to saying God can't um, or to some of these ideas. Uh, maybe you haven't. I imagine if I were to say these things that I would get some, <laughs> some uh, resistance in my rural South Carolina congregation. Um, why do you think that people struggle with this? And, and this may not be something within your purview, but like, uh, why do we hold on so much to needing God to be able to fix everything? Yeah. Great question. Well, first I should say that, you know, up here in Idaho, we're all so intellectually sophisticated that everyone just accepts God can't with no reserve, no qualms. All right. So uh, guys, we're moving up there. I'll bring my blanket. <laughs> yeah, bring a couple. Um, I think there are a number of reasons why the God can't idea rub some people wrong. Not, not everybody. It's actually surprising in how many people embrace it. The people who embrace it, by the way, let me start with those and then I'll go kind of answer your question. The people who embrace the God can't idea are typically in three categories. One, they're survivors or victims. And they read this book and they say, ah, Finally, a picture of God that said God didn't do this to me or even allow somebody else to do it to me. God didn't abandon me. And that's the really good news for them. The second group of people I call theology nerds. These are people who've been wrestling with the big questions of life. And the problem of evil has got to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest. And now all of a sudden, here comes a guy with a different answer than they've heard. And for those people, I oftentimes point them to a book I wrote previously called The Uncontrolling Love of God. That's a little more academically oriented, but this is a, a, a solution to the problem of evil that most people have not heard before. 
And then the third group of people, I kind of think of them as kind of like people on the margins, people who are out of the status quo, people who aren't in the popular crowd, people who have thought, said to themselves, because of the way I look, color of my skin, the way I was born, the way I talk, I'm not normal. And up to this point, I've kind of thought God must want that because God made me like this or God is allowing this to happen. And now here's a picture of a God who's not in control of things, who hasn't set up the status quo the way it is and put me on the outside. And so um, that, those kind of people are attracted to God can't. Now, the people who aren't attracted <laughs> to people who are offended or, you know, maybe offended too strong, but they don't like it. Saying God can't do something, even though it's in the Bible, even though the vast majority of Christian theologians in history have also said this, it goes against this kind of default mode that most people have. And my favorite example of this is... Um, a movie that's probably 20 years old, but you guys probably heard of it called Bruce Almighty. You know, Bruce Almighty is a film about a guy who all of a sudden gets godlike attributes. Now, isn't it interesting that the attribute that the film features is God's power? Like they didn't call that movie Bruce All Loving. No, when you want to talk about God, you talk about power. And so most people have a default view that God can do just anything God wants to do, even if it's logically weird, even if it doesn't make sense. They want to have a God with some kick-butt power. I'm proposing a view that says God is really powerful. I do believe God is powerful, but God doesn't have the kind of controlling power that a lot of people think God has, and that unsettles them. I could give other reasons, but I've been talking too long here, so let me stop. <laughs> well, no, I really appreciate that answer. I'm curious to back up a little bit to your your sort of four or five points that you make in the book. When I've, Whenever I talk to people who do theology professionally or just even people who have very strong theological opinions, I'm always curious about sort of the background story that's governing their thinking. Mm. And one of the things that, that I think stands out to me is, and that seems a little bit unique to me, is, is you talked about like a final victory of God's love and God's mm. sort of working towards that final victory, which is a conventional Orthodox Christian point of view. Most Orthodox Christians, especially the early Greek fathers, thought about that and, and thought about, you know, God governing and pushing the universe in a particular direction. But uh, I feel like a lot of process theologians, or at least the, the few that I've encountered, tend to um, have a little more tenuous sense of, of what that victory could be to the point where it's not always so so-called like final. So I'm curious about what is the background story that you're telling, you know, beginning to end? What is the picture that you're drawing sort of of a maybe a metaphysic or sort of just a general, um, what is it, like a religious meta-narrative? Yeah. So my Wesleyan roots are showing pretty obviously in most of what I do when I say things like this. John Wesley believed God's, that love was God's darling attribute, is his, his language. 
So he starts with God's love and then tries to make sense of reality and God's other attributes in light of love. I do the same thing. I do a little bit differently than he does, but it's the same methodological starting point. Because I have that starting point, I'm really easy to talk about creaturely freedom. I got no problem talking about indeterminacy and randomness at the quantum level or biological level. I can talk about uh, real cooperation between creatures and God or lack of cooperation such that God's will can be frustrated in these situations. So that kind of love-centered starting point related to God then moves out in all kinds of different directions, except that what makes me different probably from some theologians is that I also have a real strong desire to be consistent both rationally and experientially. I want it to make sense in the way we actually live our lives, but also avoid logical contradictions and paradoxes. And so I really try to play that out. So when it comes to kind of the end, eschatology, to use the theological word, I have a view that differs from a lot of people. And maybe, is it right if I kind of lay it out here in relation to some other eschatologies? Yes, please. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I mean, the, probably the traditional one that most people have heard is kind of the heaven and hell thing, that God decides some people get to go to heaven for whatever reason. They accepted Jesus. They were good enough. They're elect, whatever. But then there's some other people who go to hell. They have to suffer eternal conscious torment. I don't think there's good biblical evidence for that view, but it's the most common one. I reject the idea of hell as being eternal conscious torment. I don't believe that's the way God acts, and I don't believe there's good biblical support for it. Another view says that God decides everybody goes to heaven. I'll call it classical universalism. I like to say God at the end of the day says, Ollie, Ollie, income free. Everybody goes to heaven, even if they don't want to. God has the kind of sovereign power that God's going to put people in the good place, even if they wanted to go to the bad place. Well, there's some real problems with this view. One is, of course, that it has to be a God who overrides our creaturely freedom. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, given my views of, of evil and God's love. But also, it seems to make it the case that what we do in our life doesn't really matter. I mean, like right now, I'm making some real self-sacrifices when it comes to climate change. But if I thought universalism was true in the classic sense, that God has the kind of power to send everybody and everything to heaven, no matter what they did, well, heck, why care about the climate, you know? Eat, drink, and be merry, and don't give a rip. But if my choices really matter, ultimately, and God can't force me into heaven, then all of a sudden what I do right here and right now actually might make a difference. So I reject what I'll call the classic universalism approach. A third option that's kind of growing in popularity in evangelical circles is called annihilationism. And it says that uh, God doesn't send anybody to hell, but God wastes them. God annihilates them. God kills them off, either passively by not resurrecting them or actively in, a, in the fires. 
I'm against that view. I'm against that view because it sounds like God just gives up on some people. You know, it sounds like he says, you know, John and Sarah, I've given them 8,978 chances. No more for them. You guys are toast, literally annihilated. <laughs> I, <Felicia. laughs> I think the love of God, the steadfast love endures forever. I think to quote the apostle Paul, that love never gives up. It always hopes. So my view, I call it the relentless love view. It says this, God always invites us in this life and the next to a life of love. And we always have the choice to say yes or no. God never gives up on us. And if we want to say no everlastingly to God, we can. If we do, there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to God. God doesn't send you off to hell, but there is a kind of hell because you've said no to love. You're stupid. You say no to love instead of yes to abundant life. But in this view, because God never gives up, there's the hope that all will eventually say yes. The redemption of all creation, to use the Apostle Paul's language, is a real hope. It's not a guarantee because that guarantee can only come from a God who controls. And I don't think God controls, but it's a genuine hope for the kind of universal salvation that I think the classic view mistakenly says comes from God's power. Sorry, my answers are long. I'm going to try to make them shorter. From- <laughs> no, but they're so good. Like, yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, so, I mean, what you're essentially saying is that really God's character dictates how God uses power. Yes. Versus um, power dictating like the other, how we understand God. And I feel like that's such a remarkably freeing place to be. And I wish more people believe that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Let me put a little technical language on it. And it might also like trigger some insights. Okay. Um, I like to put it this way. Love comes logically first in God's nature before God's power. The implications of that is that God can't even choose not to love. God must love because love comes before even choice in God. Now, God can choose how to love, so there's freedom in that sense. But whether or not God is going to love, God must love. Both John Wesley and James Ar- or Jacob Arminius believed this. So did Thomas Aquinas. Well, not the love part, but Thomas Aquinas was a part of this tradition. The second thing I wanted to say is there has been an ongoing debate behind kind of closed doors in Christianity amongst theologians about this character issue, Brian, and this power issue. One side of the debate will, are called the voluntarists. They think God's sovereign choice comes first. John Calvin is like the poster boy for this side. When God's sovereign choice comes first, God can decide not to love. God can say, you know, it's been a good run, but tomorrow love is off. I'm not loving anybody. Garrett, tough luck. I'm not loving you tomorrow. But in my view, called the essentialist view, it says that God's nature is love and love comes first. And God must love Garrett because that's who God is. Now, how God chooses to love Garrett is going to vary depending on what's going on, et cetera. But that is a huge discussion. And I'm on the side of the essentialists 
or the people who say that God's character of love shapes what God can do. Amen. Yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, it was interesting, uh, sort of off topic, but uh, my wife's studying for her PhD in philosophy. Um, and we had a, uh, we were talking about her dissertation a little bit, and she was talking about essentialism and how essentialism has a really bad consequence of like creating a whole bunch of like dualities. You know, women are essentially tasked to do this because mm. this is how they are. Um, and then nature and reason and all of these other things are sort of pitted up against each other. But the way you talk about God and uh, this love-centered focus really, you know, dismantles a lot of dualities too, because mm, yeah. uh, in in what you said, uh, you don't lose that freedom. It, it sort of makes God's love wild and vast. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. That's beautiful. And, Let me say a few things for your wife, okay? Is that all right <laughs> about essences? Sure. <laughs> I think God is the only one who has an eternal essence. But the philosophy of Western civilization, thanks basically to Aristotle, but also to Plato, has thought that creatures have essences. Mm -hmm. And you can separate those creatures by talking about their natures, their essences. I think since Darwin, most scholars really question the idea of essences in creation. I don't believe there's such a thing as a human essence or a human nature or a female essence or a female nature which to get really controversial, I think can really help us in LGBTQ situation or conversations, mm -hmm. but I won't go there for this, the moment. I'll just want to keep, I'll keep it more philosophical. Yeah. If we don't think there are essences in creation, then all these binaries, dualities, these strong either ors begin to melt away. And that can be a really good thing. Yeah. Uh, she would like that because she uh, does continental philosophy. So nice. she, uh, yeah. she's studying relational ontology and uh, um, environmentalism and, and how, how feminism is woven through that. So uh, Great. Well, put in a good word for me so I can be on her podcast too. Okay. okay good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're trying to get her on this one, but she says uh, it's too low brow or something like that. <laughs> I love it. So, so, Tom, I have a question for you, and it, it comes from kind of a, an interesting place. The question is, considering all this, sort of taking it all together, thinking about a God who can't, who, who can't unilaterally fix these problems, who can't, like, grant wishes, so to speak, what's the point of religion, I guess, is, is the next sort of follow-up question. Like, what's the implication for a lived faith experience. And I'm asking this sort of by way of Richard Dawkins, who uh, mm. in an interview, a uh, uh, recent sort of press tour for his latest book was having a conversation with an Anglican priest whose name eludes me right now. Uh, and he kind of, that's kind of where he came back to, you know, they, they had this sort of extended discussion and the priest was essentially like, well, none of your criticisms matter because I don't believe in that God anyway. Yeah. And then Dawkins came back with, well, then what's the point if your God doesn't grant wishes? So like, I'm, I'm kind of curious if you might take a minute and play with that idea with us and, and kind of talk about what the implications of 
your book for lived religion are? Yeah, I could say a lot of things, but I'm going to stay with my commitment to keep my answers short. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about two reasons why religion matters. And I don't have just any religion in mind here. I have the religion that I find most acceptable, most plausible, and that's a religion of love. I think Jesus expresses that better than anyone, but not the only one. Jesus is not the only loving person on the planet. Also, my answer doesn't mean that only people who are religious can love. Some of the best loving people in the world are atheists. The Dalai Lama is one of my best examples of this. Guy doesn't believe in God, super compassionate. I'm impressed with them. So why would someone, let me rephrase your question, why would someone believe in a God if God can't single-handedly grant wishes? Well, I don't think the role of religion is to have our wishes granted. I think the role of religion fundamentally is to live a life of love. That means promoting well-being in our lives and in the world. Now, believing in God can help in at least two ways, and this is why I'm trying to make it short. <laughs> One is belief in God provides a philosophical or conceptual framework to make sense of life as we know it. The urges we have to love, the beauty in the world, but also the ugliness if that God isn't a controlling God. So religion or a theology of love provides a conceptual framework to make sense of reality. Secondly, if you believe like I do, that God is love and wants us to love, a theology of love also provides motivation, an impulse to live a life of love because you're in relationship with God who is calling you to love others, yourself, your enemies, and all creation. So what kind of religion we're talking about matters. I don't believe in a wish fulfillment kind of God, but I do believe in a God of love. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. It just, it's one of those things that stuck with me when I heard the interview and I've been sort of turning it over in my brain in various ways, both trying to understand where it's coming from, but also to kind of use it as a springboard for some of my own theological reflections. So Excellent. I appreciate having your reply. I uh, always take a cheeky response to some some people who ask me something similar, uh, and I get this from my uh, professor, who's a Methodist minister, but a Bardian by training, um, and he says that God's not a giant cosmic vending machine, right? We don't put in the right prayers and press the right buttons and get what we want out. It's that tension of being in a, a real relationship with God um, and God not domineering you what you do and say matters. So, yeah, um, totally agree. Dead silence. <laughs> We're all blown away. Everybody's just <laughs> marinating in the conversation we've just had. No, I, just, I, I really like the idea of a relational, uh, a relational theology, mm. um, especially as a Trinitarian person, like mm. God is in relationship with God, then, we're also in relationship with God. I don't know. Just... <laughs> yeah. If God is inherently relational, then it's not a real stretch to think that we're in relationship with God. Right. I mean, and, and I suspect you might agree with what I'm about to say that 
it's not just us either. I mean, all creation can be in relationship with God. Um, it seems like humans are the most complex in the universe. Maybe we'll find out some other aliens or more. But at this point, we think humans are the most complex. But God can be in relationship with zebras. And, you know, I just watch my octopus teacher on Netflix. I mean, the, some of the animals and, and creatures on this planet are just super intelligent. I have no problems at all thinking they have a relationship with God. Not like mine, probably, but still a genuine relationship. I just want to point out that's the second time aliens have been mentioned on the podcast. <laughs> Surely we've mentioned them more than that, Brian. <laughs> uh, how about this? Twice from a guest. There you go. No, but I, I really do think that that kind of relational aspect is is freeing for people and i and i find so many people like struggle with faith because they get bogged down not necessarily in their experiences but thinking that god did it to them yeah and it's freeing that they don't have to think that way and and that might solve a lot of the pain that they experience post-traumatically thinking that and reflecting on what God has done to them when God really hasn't. Yeah, I as you were talking, I reached over and grabbed a, a, a manila envelope of letters that people sent me through social media or actually sometimes through the <laughs> regular postal service. These are letters of people who've read God Can't and um, sent me a response. Some of them are people who've suffered from diseases, cancer, illnesses. Some are people who can finally pray because this is a way of thinking about God that makes sense to them. Um, but a lot of them are people who are victims of some kind of abuse. Let me read one of those letters to illustrate what you're saying here, Brian, because I, I think it, it matters. So this woman writes this. So I'll tell you a bit about my story. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse a lot and for a long time by my brother. In the midst of the worst years of my life, I had a very vivid dream of God walking over to my bed as I was being raped. God simply reached out and held my hand and cried. For a few short days, I was elated. God hadn't left me after all. Then came the anger, anger that God was there. And instead of stopping it, he simply held my hand and watched. For a long time, years, I was angry about this. I prayed for a breakthrough, but I never got it. So I buried it. Now, paging and praying and contemplating through your book, I can see more clearly what may have been happening. God could not stop my brother because God gives free will. How would God have stopped him? The reality is that God couldn't, not that he didn't. And for me, this is a complete game changer. So Brian, yeah, there's a lot of people who are abused who think that God either did this to them or allowed it in their lives, permitted their suffering. My view says, nope, 
God didn't do it to you or even permit it. God can't single-handedly stop people who hurt you. However, God is active in all situations, working to heal to the greatest extent possible, suffering with you, calling upon you and others to oppose evil in the world in whatever form it comes. But God's not the one who did this or allowed this bad thing to happen. And uh, just to, for all of our United Methodist listeners, uh, which I'm sure we have some, uh, remember that baptismal covenant that we all said yes to many, many times, um, that we are called to resist evil and injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. So as a closing note each week, we ask everyone on the podcast what's bringing them joy right now. And Tom, I'd really love to hear what's bringing you joy right now. I have a practice of getting out in nature. I live in Idaho and two thirds of the state is uh, state owned land. It's public lands. And so I can drive in a half hour and be away from everybody. I'm also a photographer. And so I like to make nature photos. So right now in the midst of a pandemic, in <laughs> which I can't go to the movie theater, I can't do a lot of things socially that I enjoy doing. I'm getting a lot of joy getting out by myself, practicing some art, enjoying nature, doing some contemplation and prayer. I love that. I got really excited earlier when you mentioned photography and now nature is, is really fun too. I don't know if you've listened to any of the previous podcasts, but I've been kind of lazy each week when we've gotten to this section of the podcast because all I'm talking about right now is gearing up to get ready to start section hiking the AT next year. Oh, oh excellent. <laughs> so, you know, Sarah has been listening to me weigh the differences between, you know, like what kind of hammock I want to buy and what kind of tarp to put over it and what kind of pockets I want on the backpack. I'm sure it must be excruciating to you. No, it's actually very exciting to live vicariously. <laughs> through your preparations <laughs> um, because while I love hiking and being outdoors, um, long stretches on the trail are, I don't know if it, it might be. <laughs> uh, Sarah, we'll just all take a trip to Hot Springs and he can meet us there. The trail goes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be waiting with a pizza. <laughs> Seven years ago, I hiked the Idaho Centennial Trail, which is about a thousand miles through Idaho. Wow. I'm, uh, I think I was, there are eight people who've done it all in one summer. I lost 40 pounds, got Giardia. Uh, <laughs> I had all kinds of problems, but I made it. Um, and it was really life changing. So I wish you well wow. on your AT section hikes. I really appreciate it. I got to the point where I was just like, I don't know when I'm going to have the stretch of time to do a through hike. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard so many stories about people who've started through hikes and gotten two weeks in and then just had some kind of really just horribly unlikely injury happen to them or to like a hiking partner or something like that. And so it seemed like section hiking might be more likely one to happen and two to be successful in the end. I would, uh, Really love to hear a little more about that Idaho hike <laughs> at some point. But uh, we should probably get on to everybody else. Sarah, what's bringing you joy right now? John is the night person in our relationship. I am the morning person. Um, yeah. Can I say that that brings me joy? <laughs> so, the 
promise of a restful sleep, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our complimentary sleeping styles. <laughs> it's kind of nice that we have a part of the day where we overlap and then a part of the day where we're kind of able to do our own thing. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. I just think it's kind of cool that uh, I get to go to bed early and <laughs> wake up early. And, yeah. That your brain still works at this time of night. That's a, that's a real blessing. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly doesn't work in the mornings, though. No, my brain works so much better from like 5 a.m. to 10. Because no one should be awake before 10. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just quiet. Garrett, <laughs> um, what's giving you joy right now? Oh, man. Uh, well, well, uh, every Wednesday evening we do um, a Wednesday uh, like Facebook Live thing with my church. And um, last month we did uh, cooking and this month we're doing sort of uh, advent themed crafts and i am not a crafter there was hot glue strings everywhere i burned my fingers i made i made the the advent wreath in the end uh but i had someone message me uh, uh privately and said uh thank you so much can't come Sunday, you know, or, you know, go out very much anywhere. Um, so this has been a really great way to get to know you as the new pastor. Um, and it's just been a really great spiritual, you know, pick me up in the middle of the week. So uh, that was a really cool thing to uh, read right before coming on here. So it was awesome. Well, our dog is telling us something. I don't know. I'm so sorry. Somebody fell on a well. <laughs> All right. And she was quiet all day until we started recording. It's only when the podcast starts that yeah. she decides to We listen. love Rosie. It's okay. Um, yeah. And um, so for me this week, um, we're, you know, midst of Advent. And um, we actually got some positive news from uh, Virginia Annual Conference has had a lot of restrictions in terms of what we can do in worship right now, you know, trying to keep people as safe as possible. Uh, and they have uh, finally given us permission to sing outside. Um, so Christmas is gonna be outside and I'm like giddy about it. <laughs> um, and it, it has been, I mean, since March 15th, I have not sung in worship, and I miss it. And I cannot wait to have candlelight outside, because I must sing so loud. All of the glory is all of them. <laughs> That's great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us this evening, I guess, technically, today. But we really enjoyed reading the book. You know, we've really enjoyed having you on. Uh, and it has just been such a fantastic episode. Yeah. Well, thank uh, you so much for the invitation. Um, sorry, Sarah, didn't mean to cut you off. No, I just wanted to uh, say the title of the book again. Um, and and uh, it should be, it's available everywhere. But uh, God Can't is the title of the book if you're interested in picking it up. Now, thanks for that. I, I wanted to close at least my part of it by, by saying what matters most to me. My primary motive in life, hopefully day to day, but in life at least, is to be someone 
who lives a life of love. Love is at the center of who I want to be and how I act. And it's also at the center of how I think about God. And so while some of your listeners might hear me talking today and think, oh man, that's a wild idea. I can't buy that. Why would anyone think God can't? Um, that's okay if they think that way. I don't want to come across as having all the answers and thinking I'm so smart and all that sort of stuff. But I do want to come across as someone who not only wants to live a life of love, but also wants to take the logic of a theology of love really seriously. And that's at the heart of my outlandish claim that God can't prevent evil single-handedly. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. That, that really does uh, encapsulate pretty much everything you said tonight. But uh, I think that's, that's a message that I think we all should get behind and uh, really live into. Uh, I think it'll provide a lot of change and uh, positive change in people's lives. Imagine yeah. that it's actually good news. <laughs> so, Tom, as we get ready to close, where can people find you? Um, you know, I'm on lots of social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, if you want to see some of my nature photos. I have a website that's my full name, Thomas J. Ord. My middle name is J-A-Y. My last name is O-O-R-D, so thomasjord.com. Uh, you can also uh, find information about me at the Center for Open and Relational Theology. There's actually lots of resources there, lots of videos, news. You can find out what this wild idea of open relational is all about, some videos. So um, that's a good place. I might also say that if somebody uh, happens to have read God Can't and they have questions, I actually have a follow-up book called Questions and Answers for God Can't that just came out this summer. And it answers the hard questions like, you know, what does this mean for prayer? Can you believe in miracles and believe God can't? What about, well, we, we talked about eschatology. I talk about that in the book creation, all those kinds of big questions that people typically ask me when I'm at conferences, giving lectures. I put that in a book called Questions and Answers for God Can't. So if someone wants to go a little deeper after having read God Can't, let me recommend that book. Very good. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Check us out on all of our social media. Uh, please, please, please leave some reviews for us, hopefully some positive ones. <laughs> preferably ones that reduce to a ratio of one. That's five out of five, everybody. And have a wonderful week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast, because that helps us get the word out about all the cool stuff we're working on, including the very episodes that you're listening to each week. And we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.